You're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Buchan, Insights and Communications Executive at Amber and BJ. This week, I'll be talking to Sandy Dam, a longtime Amber member, but also, excitingly, a new author of SME Globalisation. I spoke to Sandy about the steps that SMEs can take to expand on a global scale while taking into account ethics and also different cultures. We also spoke about some of the unique challenges that these small companies might face and how to overcome them. Here's that conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Sandy. Could you maybe introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your career to get started? But thank you, Alan. Um, thank you for having me. So my name is Sandy Dam, and I'm French, German by blood, a British heart. I've been running companies for 20 years, uh, developing them internationally, in some cases, turning them around and eventually multiplying the shareholder value. And since very recently, I'm the author of the book SME Globalization. But it hasn't always been like this. Uh, I was a foreigner wherever I was. I was mocked for my accents and modest origins. And I was even broke to some point in my life. But now I'm dedicating my time to fix, improve, and transform teams and organizations. Congratulations on your new book. Can you tell me a little bit about, more about it in a little bit more detail? Yes, I, the, the idea started when I hear SMEs or SMEs owners or CEOs saying, globalization is only for the big players. Only multinationals benefit from it. And we, small SMEs, don't have any benefit from it. And this is just not true. And this is why, but what motivated to write the book is to explain how SMEs can, by playing the right cards, be even more successful than multinationals and have a full benefit from globalization. And the book goes step by step how an SME can grow and thrive in its industry and position itself on the international stage. Who is the book for? Who's it aimed at? So different targets for, for this book. The first target audience is obviously SMEs, CEOs and owners, especially the ones who do believe that globalization is for others and who can pretty easily, by playing the right cards, position themselves and have all the benefits of the globalization. The second, the second target audience would be for high potential managers or directors who are in multinationals and who may have lost a bit of motivations and purpose and who probably would benefit by going, leaving the comfort on frustrations of multinationals on taking a chance in the world of SMEs. They can, they can thrive. They will have, they will find opportunities to be to bring a meaningful life to themselves, a meaningful life to the teams around them, and actually to make an impact. In an SME, they will find that decisions made in the morning can be implemented in the afternoon, which probably isn't something they're used to in a multinational company. And the, the third target, target audience would be MBA students. I do see too often MBAs students or gen graduates going out of school on joining straight away the big four consulting companies or multinationals. And I do hope somewhere 
that Facebook could encourage them to consider joining smaller businesses to be which would give them possibilities to be more hands-on to see the job on the work being much more meaningful on making an impact in the world and i do believe that two younger generations now are more concerned about making an impact in the world rather than making a big career in a larger conglomerate to the other three audiences on I do hope to reach them all. What would be the kind of first step of a company going into globalization or becoming more globalized? That's a very good question. And where, where to start? <laughs> I think the first the first step would be to make the decision and to realize that's what we want to do and to be meaningful about it. And then the first step would be to have a team and to build a vision about where do we want the company to be in five years' time? What do we as a company want to stand for in five years' time? What's our values? What, how can we improve our world? Once this is set and communicated, and the book explains how, how to do it, the different ways to do it. Once it is set and communicated, this will attract talents from inside the company. It will attract talents from outside the companies. And together, the, com- the teams can then keep building up on getting in new knowledge, know-how, cultures, on balance the gender, on the religion, on the cultures in a, in a much better way, which will open door in a very natural way. T- this is the first step. It- the, the, the second step is then you will have frictions and, and people will have frictions because it's it's changes, it's all new. Uh, do we really want to do that? Will be the first question asked and it's about believing in it. And this is what I mean, being meaningful about it. If a 100% British, 100% French, 100% German company says it wants to become a global company, it cannot do so until it starts to bring diversities in its teams and in boardrooms. And the early stage explains how to do that. Perfect. Why do you think it's maybe a little bit easier for SMEs to go globalised? How, why is that? Is it more because they have like the flexibility to kind of change for each market? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Some companies, the book opposes two, two different models. One model is called the Mittelstand, which is more... A German, a German model who looks for creating a social responsibility on just being good with his people and doesn't have much much ambition or does have ambition, but it, it just measured and looks at the long term. Whilst the Britelstand, which is much more Anglo-Saxon, British, and American, who looks at the company as an asset and is more short-termist and looks at growing it on growing it fast. And this, if you want to go fast in nowadays world, you need to be active on the international world. I think the world became just too big for a company to say, I'm actually just happy being a big fish in my little small pond. What do you think the main challenges are when managing a global team and how can an organization overcome them? Yeah, that, that's a very good point, Alan. First limit, the first limit of, of an SME to go onto the global stage is its CEO, the comfort zone of its CEO. The will to become international and to become global has to start at the top of the company. 
Let me take an example. Few few months ago, I have been talking to a company who, in, who is floated on the British stock market. And I've been there for 20 years odd. And over the last 20 years, the share price has been going up and down plus minus 5%, extremely flat on very UK-focused market. And lately, they decided, okay, from now on, we want to become global and we want to have international teams, and we want to be active in America, in Europe, in Middle East. Talking to them, onto the board, onto the shareholders, you realize, I realized, that they were all 65 plus in age, British, white, male, meaning no diversity. And the, the, the first challenge was to preserve the statu quo. Preserve the statu quo as long as possible and keep doing what we have been doing for so long, expecting that we will have different results. And that's where organizations have the biggest challenge is switching the mind. If a company wants to be taken seriously on the global stage, it needs diversity. And this must start at the bottom. Nationalities, religion, cultures, genders must be mixed to become a truly DNA-ready global company. So when a, well, there's not much point doing anything if you can't measure it, but if an organisation is just used to being a, like a domestic player, how can they then measure their success when they do start to go more global? Well, that's a good question. First, the first part of your question was, if a company on its owners decides that they're very happy with them, by the way the company is in, and it finances the lifestyle, it, fi- it finances the university for the kids, it finances the sport car in the garage, and it pays a mortgage, that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with it, and they can remain like this, but it's, it's a very short-termist. Once the decision is made, and people are all on board to address the global challenge and to be- become global, it's about how much the comfort zone is enlarged on how much people are ready to accept different opinions, different culture, accepting changes and accept that in such territories, in such countries, in such culture, cultures, things are done in a different way. And the company has to adapt to how they must behave locally in foreign countries because the era of colonialism is, is over. The time where one country could arrive in another country and impose the way they work, it doesn't work. So how to measure it is how much flexibility and how much freedom a company can give to its local teams. And that's all the art of thinking global by acting local. I'm really interested in this idea of culture and different cultures when it comes to globalization. And how important is it to take account of different cultures? And do you have an example of like how important this could be? Yeah, I think it's absolutely crucial. It's absolutely crucial. I yeah, I have met, I've met, met many small examples. I mean, <laughs> one uh, a, a, a small one detail is, as you know, in Middle East, the weekend starts on the Thursday afternoon, on the week starts on the Sunday morning. So when you have Europeans, and I have seen Europeans organizing meetings, trips. On the Friday. So nothing is happening on the Friday. And asking your teams in Middle East to work on to have meetings or phone calls on a Friday is just disrespectful because 
would you ask a European, a, a British, an Irish, a German or a Dutch to come into a meeting on a Sunday? No, you wouldn't do that. So it's about being open enough on to, to make the effort to understand the local requirements. When a company is becoming global, how can organisations keep control of their supply chains, ensure that they remain ethical? Because there's so much in the news right now about companies not kind of becoming so large that they don't keep track of what's going on in the kind of further down the line supply chains. Yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's probably, it can, it can be a stretch for SMEs because SMEs may not have the, the means to have people sitting in factories in China or in Asia or in America, because the volumes of activities will not justify a full-time person in that country. So the first level would be to build solid relationships with your partners so you can trust and you have regular trips three or four times a year. You would have someone from the quality production or even the CEO yourself as a CEO would need to be involved in, in building the relationship or just ensuring that everything runs the way it should be on that the, the supply chain is ethical. And another option would be, and I've seen that happening in for some European, European SMEs do that. The Germans are very good at that, actually. The hands as a pack, meaning that different companies, different SMEs, not much to do with, it, with each other, but they have common suppliers. In that case, when they put the resources together, it justifies to employ someone locally based in Asia, South America, or wherever the supply is on the supply chain is. And this person is employed or equally shared by two different European SMEs or Western SMEs to ensure that the four companies get the best value and that the local supplier, manufacturer, complies with all the rules on ethics, which they commit to, on which the Western companies is supposed to hold them accountable for. That's so interesting that competitors would help each other out like that. I know we're all bored of speaking about COVID, but I think this is a quite interesting perspective to look at it from. How has COVID-19 kind of changed globalisation for SMEs? Has it been helpful or has it hindered it and i guess it's different for different industries yes yeah that, that's in, in the early stage of the book thing in chapter in chapter two about the whole globalized are we that i described the concept of as more globalization we have as more growth is coming but this growth is coming from frictionless trade and everything which creates friction in the trade slows down growth, slows down development. On COVID, is just one more friction. Okay, it was, I would say it's probably a big one in 2020, probably the biggest friction we, we have had for, for, for many years. But it could not have had anything slowing down on reducing the ease of trade is goes against development growth. On, on globalization. So I'd like to ask you more about kind of your background on doing your MBA. And I was wondering how doing an MBA at Leon Business School has impacted your career so far. It's it, it's difficult to say because no, no nobody has hired me uh, telling me I hire you or you get the job because you have an MBA. It's, it's a few years ago now. I graduated in 2005. 
what so so it's difficult to say how much is it has impacted me or, or opened me doors. What, what I can say is the experience of an MBA has definitely opened my mind and contributed to the person I became over the year and maybe made me probably more comfortable with enlarging my my comfort zone with foreign cultures, mixity, diversity. That's on the soft of the on the soft skills side. But also on the on the hard skills, it's you know you learn accounting, marketing, strategy. That that's all good. But at least half of it is your behavior on how you interact with different with different cultures. From your experience, and perhaps from meeting other kind of professionals who have MBAs, do you believe that the business school programs are sufficiently global to kind of create leaders who can thrive in this global economy? Yes. Well, there's a big difference between the full-time on the executive programs. Since the executive programs, that's something, that's what I did. So the weekend, on, you have a, the, mix, the mixity on diversity is, is slightly reduced because people have to, leave, have to leave around the place or not too far away from the school. So full-time programs where you spend a full year or 18 months on campus on when you, where you work, sleep, eat with all your classmates who are coming all over the world is, is a very strong experience. And I'm not surprised that the younger generations now coming out are so open to the world and are so diverse and hungry of new cultures on traveling, on open. And I, I believe it's, it's, it has an extremely positive impact. And I would see companies on the global economy benefiting from it. Yeah, that's most definitely. And what kind of MD, MBA did you do? I did the executive one. So I did the one over a weekend. Connecting the two things that we've been talking about, what do you think kind of holds the future? Do you think that post the pandemic, travel and almost trade will go back to the way it was? Or do you think that we'll kind of have to look at it from a more like sustainability lens? Do you think people will be traveling globally for meetings and such in the future? Well, that's a bit of a, of a crystal ball you're asking me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear over the last 14 months, we heard a lot about how easy it is to do business from home uh, via different conferences on the tools, ITs. I agree, it is easy. What I would highlight is it might be easy when teams are established on relations do exist between the team members. So that's easy to cultivate and to get on with it via social platforms or by distance. I would question more how, if it remains, if it would remain like this, how could people on teams grow together and have a common purpose if, if they're only together virtually and they never meet up? I do actually value a lot, especially in, in the world of SMEs. There's a great atmosphere on people behind them on the team spirit is, is crucial. So I believe, will it come back 100% office time? Maybe not. I believe we, we will come out with a with a hybrid solution where companies will give a sort of flexibility about three days, three days on on two days home or four days one day. I would see a different a different balance. Yeah, but at the end of the day, people buy from people. That's something I'm extremely convinced about, and it's it's even more true in the world of SMEs, where 
personal relationships do matter much more. And in, in the world of SMEs, you can you have the chance and the opportunity to develop these relationships in a much more meaningful way that you would have in a multinational. So I do believe that this will come back because people buy from people. I totally agree. So lastly, I wanted to ask you as someone who is an AMBA member, how have you made the most out of your AMBA membership? I enjoy it very much. AMBA, it's a, it's a dwell of, of information. I mean, these podcasts, uh, the books, which I recommended. I do enjoy a lot, all, well, in, in the previous times, <laughs> when people could meet and we could meet in a room. Uh, I enjoyed going to conferences on reunions with topics. I remember the last one I'd been on was about gender diversity on uh, women, women in, in boardrooms. And it was a very passionate debate. On yeah, I do remember it was a great, a, a great evening. Um, I'm not sure you could share the same passion on the same quality of exchanges if it if it would be all be virtual. Well. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's been amazing to talk to you. And I really hope that the book SME Globalization goes really well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Sandy for being on the podcast today. If you'd like more about leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to listen out for the next ambition podcast. <laughs>